Okay, so last week, I really have a Rosh Hashanah shear I want to do today, like tying into this, but I'm not sure if we'll get to it. Oh, may I make a so quick we'll see. announcement? Yeah, sure. That if you want to go on Tuesday, next Tuesday, Rabbi um, Adlerstein yes. has a, you have to sign up in advance because they have security, but from 12 to, at 12 o'clock, in the middle of the day, he's giving a shear, it's near the Wiesenthal Center, I, I have the exact link. I could give you, give it to you and let you know, but somebody I had to sign up for it. It's next Tuesday, Rabbi Adlerstein. If anybody's nice. interested. Okay, sounds good. Okay, so we were talking about the number thirteen because this bracha of das, atzachonin la adam das, is the first of the bakashos, which means it's the first of a series of thirteen, because there are thirteen bakashos in Shmona Esrei. So we're talking about the significance of that of 12 and 13, and 13 representing the creation of a space of, for one. So th- the number 13, so you have 13 tribes that create the, the sons of Yaakov. It's the Bnei Israel. It's a unified unit. You have 13 gifts to the Mishkan to create a space for Shechina. This concept of 13 as the components that when working all together in unison actually has a oneness, a space for a oneness. I thought there were 12 tribes. There's well, there's 13 because of Menashe and Ephraim. It's, it's a 12 plus 1, and, and it really, the truth is, the number 13 is a 12 plus 1. Oh, this, and it's sort of like we've talked about with the number 8, where it's a 7 plus 1. It's not just, there's like an 8-ness, and there's a 7 plus 1 aspect to it. That's, that exemplifies the eight, which is not true of every number, meaning it's yeah, true that six it. is five plus one, but we wouldn't say that like the ichor of sixness is fiveness plus oneness. It's not that. Mm-hmm. But with eight, it is true. Yeah. And 50 is like that also. It's a 49 plus a one. Certain exactly. numbers are like that, and 13 is like that, where it's a 12 and a one. So the, the word echad, which is one, has a gematria of 13. So the, the word itself is a structure of 13 that contains mm-hmm. the, the essence of 1, right? It's also 1, 8, 4, so it's 1 plus 12. I mean, that's, that's typical of a 13. Um, in the case of the 13 tribes, so the way that... I'm trying to remember who it was that just said this. It was the Maharal talked about it as 12 tribes plus Levi, meaning in terms of the Nachla, who gets the share in Eretz Yisrael, then it's 12 plus Levi. Levi represented the Aleph and Echad. They spell out eight are the, the other sons who are sons of Rachel and Leah, and four who are the sons of the Shvachos. So that was a different way of putting them together, but, although I don't think I actually said that last week. Okay, so that was what we talked about last time. I have a little bit, a, a little more to continue on that before the next topic. Um, so, did you just want to say something? Oh, okay. Okay, so. Okay. So, we were looking at some very nice notes. Did I start these? I don't think I started them yet. Maybe I did. Some very nice notes from a safer that Kelsey gave me about the number 13, which was very handy-dandy for this particular topic. As it turned out, Ben Yud Gimel, thirteen years old, like or but it means really like born of thirteenness. I think it's probably meant as a bar mitzvah gift normally. Mm-hmm. She didn't give it to me for my bar mitzvah. <laughs> okay, so yeah, we did do some of this last time. We talked about the number thirteen bakashos in Shmona Esrei that allows us, it's all things that we require and we elevate them. And this was similar to an idea that we had seen um, originally in Rav Hirsch. Rav Hirsch talks about the parts of Shemona Esrei. We have the Shavach, the praise, and then the Bakashos, the requests, and the Hoda'a, the gratitude at the end. And the Bakashos correspond in the Karbanos to the offering of the body of the animal, so the, at the beginning, first is the offering of the blood, which is like the whole self, and then the separate limbs and organs. So that's a dividing up. It's that same idea of 13 separate things and then put it back together to create one whole, that it's still a whole, okay? And the elevation of all of that 
and that the things that we're asking for and the things that we need, we're thinking about in terms of how we're serving Hashem. So what we're asking for then is not what we need because we want it or feel like it. It's that we want it and feel that we want it because it's part of our avoda, part of our dedication to Hashem. And we do feel that we're missing things and we do feel that we want things and we do feel that we need to ask for things. But ideally, that is born of the fact that we're trying to serve Hashem as best as we can. And we notice that there are things that are missing or that we require, or that we have them, but we still need to continue to have them if we're going to be able to keep this up. We're going to need life, we're going to need energy, we're going to need knowledge, we're going to need refuah, we're going to need parnasa, all these things that we're going to need in order to be able to do that. Okay. And that corresponded to the 13 midos. Hashem has described that we refer to him with 13 midos, Hashem, Hashem, Kel, Rachel, Luchan, and that was also like a going into Elul and Rosh Hashanah and Slichos, right? Which describe the midos through which Hashem interacts with the world and unfolds his chesed into the world. And whether they are sweet or bitter, it is all really coming from the same koach of Hashem. And so we're thinking about our needs in the sense of 13. Also, the Svasemis points out, there are, sorry, it was the Kad HaKemach, Rabbeinu Bachia, who pointed out that we have 13 because there are 12 requests for what we want that are sweet and one that's bitter, mm-hmm. right? Because there's the added bracha that makes it 13, which is saying, Hashem, please destroy, get rid of the Malshinim, right? That's like a tough one. <laughs> Right? In fact, living in a time of peace as we mostly have, it can be difficult to relate to that idea at all. Like, why would you want, want somebody to be stopped? Like, as long as I'm fine, what's the problem? Right? And not, we're not necessarily so tuned in to the travesty to the world and to other people sometimes that's caused by the wickedness of truly bad people. We don't even. We might read about it in the news and think, oh, that's so sad, and not even relate to, like, what a disgrace it is in the world at all that such things should be going on, right? It reminds you of um, when Shimon and Levi said to, to Yaakov, right, they, they wiped out Shechem. And it's like, <laughs> how are we going to, like, everyone's going to come and attack us. You can't just go around. And they were like, such a thing is not done. He kidnapped and raped our sister. That shouldn't happen. This has nothing to do with, it's not even the personal offense. It's not even, like, that doesn't belong in the world. You can't, that's a, that's a disgrace to the world, to God's world, that people behave in such a way. And that's like on a small scale, because that's an individual person. Not that Dina's a small scale. I mean, talking about the Shvatim, but that's like on an individual level and these individual levels are multiplied over and over again in some parts of the world that just because we're not exposed to it i think we sometimes you know we like to be gentle and we don't like to be confrontational and it's difficult to think about the fact that like there could be people who do so much harm to the world and to other people and to basic justice that we would wish they weren't okay um okay so if we think of, there are more jets lately. If we think of 13 bakashos of our needs as couched and framed by shavach at the front, praise, and hoda'a, gratitude, at the end. And in the middle we have 13, which is asking for what we need, and it's also the way we receive everything that we need through this concept of Hashem, Hashem, Kel, Rachum, Vichanan, right? When we feel real need, that's what we call out communally. We call out in the name of God, which was Hashem, we mentioned this last week, right? Hashem's response when Moshe said, why why is it that when I look at the world, I don't see a full expression of Kavod Hashem? I don't see Kavod Hashem fully expressed in the world. There are things, because the covet is how Hashem's glory is expressed in the tangible world. That's the word covet. And there are things that happen in the world that do not reflect that. Tzadik viralo rasha vitovlo. That's what Moshe said. 
there are righteous people and it looks like bad things happen to them. And there are bad people and it looks like good things happen to them. So that doesn't express the glory of God into the world. How come I can't see that? And Hashem said, you're not going to be able to see. You can't understand that during your lifetime. What you can see is Hashem, Hashem, Kel, Rachum, V'chanun, Erech, Hapayim, Rav Chesed, V'emes. Right? That's what Hashem told him. Now, really, we're told that we're meant to emulate Hashem in those midos. And only because he has told us about these midos. Okay? So, mahu rachum afata rachum. Just as Hashem is merciful, you should be merciful. Mahu chanun afata chanun. Just as Hashem gives freely, you should also give freely. And in emulating him as best as we can, let's not say that, in emulating his midos as best as we can, we can't emulate God, in emulating Hashem's midos as best as we can, we are called what, what the Mirtav Meliahu described as Kori B'Shem Hashem. He's actually quoting a medrash, Kori B'Shem Hashem, one who calls out in the name of God. It's both through our speech, calling out in the name of Hashem, and through our actions, we are called in the name of God, meaning people can look at us and see godliness. You know, I just had a conversation yesterday with somebody. She's not Jewish. She works in a Jewish school, and she told me, she said, I, I don't know exactly how she grew up. She clearly grew up in a church, but I don't know exactly what flavor. I would guess based on where she's from, maybe Methodist or Lutheran. I'm not sure. And she said, all of a sudden I met, there's like a community of people who aren't one way at home and one way in church. <laughs> Meaning she was introduced to the Orthodox Jewish community, right? Where there's like, as opposed to what she grew up with, which was sort of their Sunday behavior. And, you know, so granted, there's probably some people who are drastically different. Yes. But I think that, and, and that doesn't mean there are like very fine Christian people who really do take home church into their homes, but right. the average normal behavior is you might go to church and think about and hear about certain, you know, judging everyone good and always returning with a soft answer or whatever, you know, like this not, I don't specialize in Christian values, right? <laughs> Turn the other cheek, I don't know, right? <laughs> okay, but that's not, you wouldn't, nobody expects to see that affecting minute to minute behavior at home and in the office. They really don't. It's true that there are people who do, and I don't mean to deny that, that's a wonderful thing. But the normal thing is not that. It's not just America. It's, you know, I would say probably Americans have more of that because America is still only a couple hundred years away from people who came here because they were so idealistic. So like, probably Americans have even a greater, you know, so this is the greater side. And all of a sudden she walked in and discovered there's like this orthodox community of people where like, they don't just, that like Lashon Hara is like on the lips of the kids, not, not the speaking Lashon Hara, but about it. Right? Oh, maybe don't say that, it's Lashon Hara. Right? Or, Dan Lekav Sechus. Or, well, we're not allowed to do that because it might hurt someone's feelings. Right? And she said, I see God here more than I've seen him before. She said, some of her students said, God is invisible. When she... And then the other student said, no, no, she means she can see him in our actions. It's <laughs> oh, really cute. Very, very cute. Okay. This but is that what? Taurus Emmas? I didn't say that. Oh. I just, oh, didn't say that. I didn't oh. give any identifiers. Oh, but, and I did not say that either, by the way. I, didn't, I did I not say that, say but that. they don't have a lot of non-Jewish teachers. They don't have Whatever. a lot of non-Jewish teachers. But no, they don't. That's true. The That's point amazing. is, it was such an example of that Mechtav Meliyahu. That is amazing. Right? That when a person is striving to emulate the Midos of Hashem, then what other people see is godliness. Not that they confuse it, like those kids saying, what? Yeah, right? <laughs> exactly. Not that they confuse it. The opposite. No. It truly shines God's qualities into the world in a way that makes people aware of them, new. 
it was just such a striking example of it because it was completely tangential. We were having like a different conversation, you know, about like the cultural sort of shock of showing up in a different place and like trying to explain to people dress codes and like, you know, how do you employ people if you only do half a day of English, half a day? There's like all kinds of different topics, you know, and this popped out. And it wasn't someone who was like hearing about it as a lesson and then looking to see, oh, do I see that lesson? This was just such a striking experience that it, it's just an amazing, I don't know, I really felt like it was an amazing illustration. That's in the car, people. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I don't, I, it's that's good it. for everyone to be brought closer yeah. to God yeah. wherever they require it. But, but it was such a powerful lesson in this, in what it really means when we behave in a certain way. And when those things come from inside of us, and you don't think that anyone's looking, and it's not, but it does, in fact, fill the world with a different kind of light. And this is similar to the Pasuk that we have, Mizbeach Adama Tazali, we've talked about this Pasuk many times. Make for me, Hashem says, right after the Aserah Sadebros, make for me a Mizbeach of earth. And remember, Rav Hirsch talks about how the Mizbeach has to be planted on the earth. There can't be a barrier between the earth that fills the Mizbeach and the earth it sits on. Why? Because it has to be the earth reaching up for heaven, right? We're not meant, we've talked about this, not meant to try and bring the spiritual down. It's that we're trying, meant to elevate the physical up. That's the role of a Mizbeach. That's the concept of our avoda altogether. This whole idea of we have these physical needs that we're asking for, we're elevating them in bringing them onto the Mizbeach. That's the avoda. That's the korban that we're doing, right? So the Torah says, Mizbeach adama tasali. And you should bring the karbanos upon it. And in every place where I will mention my name, says God, I will come to you and bless you. So who's, God is mentioning his name? Or we're mentioning, what, what? it's a little confusing. If it's our avoda, why is it God mentioning his name? Because when we behave and we call out, whoever calls out in the name of God, will we'll, uh, we'll, we'll escape, will be like set free, okay? That's where the Medrash says, Kari B'Shem Hashem, it's ambiguous. Is it who's called by the name of God or who calls out in the name of God? It's both. It's the same thing. It happens together, one and the same. And that emulation of Hashem's Midos means that we see ourselves as mashpi'im, as those who are affecting others. We look at our lives and think about how does what I do affect other people around me or affect the space around me. Now, sometimes it's totally unintentional. We don't even realize. But it's a way, especially going into Rosh Hashanah and this time of year of Cheshbon HaNefesh, one very helpful tool is to take a step back and say, as a mother, as a wife, as a child, or a sister, or a boss, or an employee, or a friend, what do I bring? What do, what do I contribute? And that's, that comes back to the idea of knowing one's strengths, right? Woe to a person who doesn't know his weaknesses, but double woe if you don't even know your strengths. You don't even know what you have to work with. What do I bring? What do I add? What difference do I make? when I'm at my best. <laughs> so then how could I make that happen more often? And this is this concept of the, the soul reflecting Hashem. Okay, so now I want to take this a drop further because this idea of das, atachonin lo'adam das, Hashem gave man das, this is part of the gift of Tzalem Elohim. We've talked about this over and over again, right? Dea v'dibor, knowledge and speech, which are, which are ways in which Hashem has given us a gift of this capacity, which is a reflection of him. That when the Malachim first saw man, they didn't know which way to turn. It was like they were seeing some sort of piece of glass that was shining this bright light, this divine light. They were like, is the light coming from there? That can't be right. And God said, no, no, it's reflecting my light. That, that's what they saw when they saw the creation of man. Before they saw the creation of man, they where saw all the get, problems. Where does it say that? That's where the Medrash. Um, I think Rashi may even bring that. Let's take a quick look. I'm going to 
must have been too long because I don't remember exactly where it is. Um, I don't remember if it's an olive or a base. This is the meaning, though, by the way, of man being created in the image of God. I mean, that means that there's something that God sees that reflects something of him in it, right? The word sail is a shadow, so it's something that has the shape of but not the brilliance of the original. Okay, I don't, I don't see it right here. Um, looks like it might be the Rashi on Aleph Chavav, but I have to read it more carefully. I have to read again more carefully. Okay. Yeah. No, I'll read it more carefully, but not I not was, in the middle. I was yeah. Just it, came from. it was. Yeah. Okay. Fascinating idea. Yeah. Okay. Unfortunately, we don't live up to it much, and I'm not sure they're entirely in awe of us most of the time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the potential's there. <laughs> okay. So in the Sefer Nefesh HaChayim, he explains, there's a Chazal that says, God gives wisdom to the wise. Okay? Which is always like one of these puzzling things, because is it the wise people who need wisdom? <laughs> like the foolish people who need the wisdom, not the wise people who need the wisdom. Right? So, okay, we understand what it means. Like, how did they get to be wise? God gave them the wisdom, but then that's also a little confusing, because why only those people? So... This is in the, in the footnotes to Rav Chaim Kanievsky's Shema Tfilosi on Das. Where does the first Chachma come out from? It's from Hashem. God gives the wisdom to the wise. Like he's the source of all the wisdom. But if he's giving wisdom to those who are already called wise, so that sort of makes it sound like the wisdom starts with the person, and then Hashem, like, adds to it. Okay, so the key to understanding that is the pasuk, reishis chachma yiras Hashem. The beginning, the initiation, reishis, the beginning of chachma is yiras Hashem. Mm -hmm. Okay, which is, of course, awe of God. But we know that the word yira is also part of the word for seeing, Right, because it's that heightened awareness. It's seeing our smallness in Hashem's greatness, meaning learning about Hashem, recognizing, you know, this is not just happening. This is Hashem doing it. This, this force of nature, this event in history, this presidential campaign, right? <laughs> These are big movements that are not really stoppable on the individual level. Like, all these things happening... It makes us feel small and powerless. And in recognizing that Hashem is in fact all powerful and controlling all of these forces for the purpose and plan he has set, that is the beginning of wisdom. And everything is in the hands of heaven except what? That God leaves to us. Could he control that? Yes, he doesn't. That comes down to the point in which we are what? A reflection of God. We are Tselem Elohim because we have free will. That's Bechira. That's free choice. And what is the element of free will? Yerushamayim, which is the Reishis Chachma, the beginning of Chachma. That doesn't also doesn't make sense. Why, why wouldn't Hashem just give everybody Yerush Hashem and then we could all just be... And it would all be good. Yeah. So he can... Yeah. There's well, two we proofs. We'd all be good, but we'd all at least have years of shem. Well, what you? I mean, your shemaim's a good know. start, yeah. right? So you you know that he could from two things. One is he created malachim, and malachim basically don't mess up. Okay, and number two is that in the future, in the messianic era, Hashem, the land will be filled with knowledge of God which means everyone will have some degree of Yerushalayim by default. So the answer is yes, he could do that. <laughs> which means there's a reason he doesn't, which gets back to Moshe's question. How come I don't see? Right? But that gets back to man having free will. 
And that ability to make the choice, am I turning towards Hashem in this moment or not? Sometimes we feel trapped. We don't know what we can do. The situation just seems like there's no way out. And then all we can do is say, whatever it is I'm choosing, I'm going to choose whatever I, I, best I understand what Hashem wants for me. And maybe I don't even know what the choice is yet. Sometimes you got to go to sleep and you wake up in the morning, it becomes clear a little bit, right? But just that, that, like, it's almost a physical force, but it's inside of us to try and push ourselves so that we're trying to face closer to Hashem. So the Medrash Tanhuma says, foolish people sit in places where you're not allowed to learn Torah. And therefore, okay, I don't know, maybe they, they like to spend all their day, like in the spa. That would be our equivalent of like a bathhouse, right? Like somewhere where they could like hang out, but they're not exactly dressed. Gesundheit. Thank you. Umimela, so by default, like lo yilmaduv, lo yasku Torah. So even, you know, the, he's talking about people who are careful with the mitzvot. They're not learning Torah. They're not busy with Torah. They're not hearing Torah. Is it because they're so busy with something wicked? He's talking about foolish people. No, it's because they're hanging out in a place where, like, you're not exactly going to... They're in the locker room, so, like, not learning Torah. You know, when Rav Moshe Feinstein asked Ashila, he was a rabbi in Russia, and the Russian, they had the Russian Revolution. And all of a sudden, there was a lot of pressure on people. You couldn't teach Torah. It was against the law. And he asked Ashila because he felt like, how can you leave your community at such a time when there was, it didn't look, and people were being sent to Siberia. He knew there was a risk, like he was a rabbi. He was probably going to be sent to Siberia or just killed. But on the other hand, how could you just leave? And he had, for whatever reason, he had the opportunity to go to America. And when he asked Ashila, he was told, being in Russia right now, it's like being in the bathroom. Why? Because in the bathroom, you're not allowed to learn Torah. So you're in a place now where they're telling you you're not allowed to learn Torah. I mean, it's understood that Rav Moshe was thinking about Torah all the time. You couldn't, you know, turn that off. He said, it's not reasonable for someone to spend their whole life in a bathroom. That's what he was told. Like, wow. it's true. Like, you can't leave people, but what can you do? You can't spend your entire life in a place where there's no learning Torah, there's no teaching Torah, there's no, that you can't do. So foolish people, they sit all their life in the bathroom. Or whatever, you know, the bathhouse, the spa, the whatever the equivalent is. I don't know. I'm not sure if a gym would be in that category, right? How about in front of the um, In front of the TV. Just, and, you know, yeah, I don't know if it's like computer. us. Right, depending what they're watching. So it could well, be it's I mean, us or to learn Torah like, over there also. But there's probably people no, sitting in front of the internet learning I mean, Torah. So. I mean, just like looking at, you know. Yeah, okay. But that's, that's already, this is not even talking about that. Because then you might say then they're doing something bad. A person might be doing something oh, wrong what oh, they're watching. Here, it's not talking about anyone doing anything wrong. They're just wasting time. Right. It's, 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 it's foolish people, tipshim, people who are, like, ignorant. What do they do? They spend all their time in places where you can't learn Torah. Not that they're doing something bad. Uh, they're watching football all day. Okay. The only thing is when you're watching football, there's nothing that prohibits you from learning Torah. Okay. But maybe if you're watching, like, a spa is, I think, a better, or maybe a gym, like, <laughs> yeah. Right, or at the gym, right? But people aren't really clothed, so you couldn't really learn there. Right. Maybe that would be our but modern are you equivalent. Are go to the gym and listen to Torah anytime while you're doing the I don't know, health? I don't know. And the halachas That's for women are different from men, but it's a question for a rab. <laughs> okay, it also depends, like, sometimes if you're on a, if you're, you're not necessarily facing anybody, so it might yeah, just yeah, depend exactly. if someone happens yeah, to walk in. I don't know. Yeah, aval, but wise people, what do they do? They go to the base medrash and they're busy learning Torah. And this explains that God gives wisdom to the wise. So hang on just a second. I just want to go back and rewind there, right? Okay, so how did it explain it? What it explained was the difference between a wise person and a foolish person is not really how much Torah they learned. It was the original choice. And it wasn't a necessarily a forbidden versus permitted choice. It was a choice in where they wanted to spend their time. Did somebody choose to spend their time sitting where there's people sitting and learning Torah? Or did they choose to spend their time at the gym? Is either one of these forbidden or permitted? No, they're both allowed. There's no rule about it. 
in fact, maybe you need to spend some more time at the gym, <laughs> right? <laughs> than what you do. Who knows? Me. <laughs> okay. But there's a choice there. And in that choice, that's what made the person distinctive. Are they a tipish or a chacham? That's where it happened. And then God gave wisdom to the wise. Somebody who said, you sit around in a base mattress long enough, doesn't mean you'll become a big Talmud Chacham. You're definitely going to learn a lot more than if you spent the whole day at the gym. So there's that, that moment of choice that is this underlying, this is all part of this, this fact that the being created in the image of God, das this is being human. This is being a real person. And in the, in the case here of Shimon Esrei, we're really talking about that ideal role of humanity that the Jewish people have picked up and run with that was set down for so long and by most of the world. So it's not that we're saying this applies to everyone. This should have applied to everyone. It doesn't in the moment. In the moment, it's the Jewish people who carry that torch. But there's, there's a, it's not even integration. Like it's, these are all different aspects of the same thing. The das, the knowledge, and the bechira, the choice, and the tselem elokim, these are all different aspects of the same thing, which is God blowing the neshama of life into man. Okay. Um, so this is also a nice Rosh Hashanah point. I think I'll probably, oh, we'll see. But it's not the one that I was saying I was going to talk about. <laughs> okay. So this is, I think this is from Revolvi. Okay. There is no, there's nothing deeper in the world than the depth of a person's midos. Sort of like if you want to know the deepest topic you could research, look into yourself. Every single mida is another sort of deep secret and foundation to learn. It's, it's, it's a lifetime. It's a lifetime of study to try and study and understand even yourself. And there's no chachma like the chachma of midos. So let's see if we want to learn to know ourselves and to be able to, hopefully through that, to change ourselves, to get to know Hashem more closely through self-knowledge. So if we pay attention over a long period of time, we start to get, become familiar with the various forces and midos that are working within us. And we will also start to recognize that there are certain midos that we feel really often and other ones that don't come up so often. And that's like very personal to the person. Some people almost never feel angry and some people are constantly angry. Some people are always cheerful and very rarely sad. Some people always feel sad and very rarely happy. There's a lot of different combinations. And little by little, we can start to know which midos are our core midos as an individual. And this is a very great piece of knowledge to develop. As Rav Yerucham said, based on Parshas, I think it's in Vayechi, when Yaakov called together his sons before he died. It says he gave them each a bracha. It says it in a very interesting way. So he blesses each one of them. Sorry, just trying to find... I think we, we actually talked about this once in a Parsha share, but it was a few years ago. Tully, Yosef, okay. Binyamin, Kol Ele, all of these, Shifte Yisrael, are the tribes of Israel, Shnei Masar, 12. Menashe and Ephraim got their bracha already right before that. Vizos asher diber lahem avihem. And this is what their father said to them. He blessed them. Each one he blessed in accordance with his bracha. 
So Rav Yerucham said like this. He says, Rashi says, what does it mean that Isha Sher Kivirchaso, each one blessed according to his bracha? Bracha ha'asid ve'echad, meaning he gave them the bracha that Hashem was destined to give them. Okay? Whether that's because these themselves were the prophecy, whether he recognized that prophetically, the bracha he gave them was the bracha that was destined to develop through them. But then he goes and he takes it a different direction a little bit, Rav Yerucham. He says, really, each one of these sons got a bracha that was exactly suited to his midos and his nature. And you see that he's referring to them, he compares them, some of them to different types of animals and, right, or to water, or to different things. He's describing their nature in addition to giving them a bracha that's going to unfold. Which means that we could learn from that to understand what happened just before in the bracha of Menashe and Ephraim. When Yosef said to Yaakov, hang on, you've got your hands swapped. You have your right hand on the younger son and your left hand on the older son. Because Ephraim was younger and Menashe was older. And Yaakov said, I know, I know. But this younger son is going to be Gadol, Yigdal. He'll be bigger than the other one. He's going to be greater. How does that answer the question? Meaning he's saying you've got your hands on the wrong one. He says, no, no, this is right because he's destined to be greater. In other words, he was blessing the children and grandchildren according to the bracha that was already had a seed inside of them, even if it hadn't come out. So maybe, yes, I mean, Nash and Ephraim were adults by then, but Ephraim's younger. But because he could tell that in the future, that which was going to come out of Ephraim was more Bihar-like, more older, <laughs> more, more grown up than what would come from Menashe, he gave a bracha that corresponded that way. So what does that tell us, going back to, the other, to this other Pasuk? It tells us, Yaakov's saying, I can't change the bracha. I'm giving them a bracha, but I, I am forced to give each one a bracha in accordance with who they are, who they were created as and to be. That I can't change. So we've learned about the word bracha in the past. What, one of the fundamental meanings of the word bracha is multiplication, which means there always has to be something there to multiply. Right? If you multiply times zero, you don't get anywhere. Okay? We talked about this around Shavuot's time, right, with Rus and the idea of a good eye, tov ayin, right, that when someone gives bracha, they, when you see the good, in somebody or something. That by itself brings out bracha. Why? But you, what you're seeing is already there. It's not that you're seeing something not there. You're seeing something that is there, and from that it can express and come out to become more. So the Pasuk is telling us very directly, each one, according to his bracha, he blessed him. He, he can only give him a bracha that will multiply what he already has inside. And that's really, he says, that's what the Rashi really means. It's the bracha that is destined to unfold from those people, right? Not just a projection ahead, it's what is already existing inside their deepest nature. Which means that all the milas of the Shvatim, they actually had inside of them naturally. Now this is a little bit of a I don't know if it's quite an intuitive idea or not. It's hard to say. Because sometimes we think of it this way, sometimes we don't. I mean, all this greatness, he gives the example Yosef. Yosef and his incredible ability to separate himself from that which is Tame and hold on to his inner purity, right? He's saying that was actually natural to him. Okay. Now, what he's not saying is that it was easy, just that it was natural. He already had a certain kind of strength there. He needs to build on it. You need to exercise it. You need to choose it. You could get a bracha that will help notice it and call it out and multiply it and activate it, but it had to be there already. 
In his teva, he had this quality of being able to be a kadosh, to be parosh, to be separated. Also, Yehuda, your brothers recognize you, right? This mila of hoda'a, your brothers thank you, 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 okay, this aspect of hoda'a, which is part of his name, Yehuda, right, acknowledgement, this is already mitzad hateva. That's naturally planted inside of him. And what we learn from this for ourselves is something wondrous. That it's only by guarding and cultivating the strengths that Hashem has already given us that we can achieve our real greatness and perfection. That's, it's a very demanding thing, but it's very encouraging. Mm-hmm. Right? It's not that we achieve our greatness by breaking ourselves. It's that we achieve our greatness by fully developing and utilizing the powers that Hashem has put inside of us. That's what we really have to bring out. Because in truth, the whole foundation of a person's avoda in the world is really is really through fully activating all the strengths that Hashem has naturally put inside of him. It's quite... Uh, you know, I think we've talked about this before. Like, really, the beginning of a, a personal cheshben has to come with counting up the strengths. And it's not just to make you feel good. It has a bonus, which is then you don't get so depressed that you give up altogether. <laughs> but that's not the reason. The reason you have to start by noticing what we called before, right? Thinking of yourself as a mashpia. What do you contribute in? You have to think that way because that's who you are. That's who you were created to be. You are created to be somebody who's meant to shine a certain divine light into the world. What is it? You've got to figure out what it is because how do you know what you're meant to be doing? How do you know what to amplify, what to work on? That's what we have. That is our primary avoda. If you guard those things and you strengthen them appropriately so that you don't move away from your natural good qualities and strengths, now, sometimes a person's natural good strengths can develop into their weaknesses if they're misplaced, right? Mm-hmm. So it's about using them properly, but it's not about going against your nature. It's about developing your nature. From this, a person can reach the tachlish shleimosa, the objective, like the, end, the, the full realization of his perfection. And then the rest of him can learn to be flipped over to follow. When you have that much strength going, you'll be able to, to bring your bad problems and turn them around too. Because those aren't core. Those aren't who you are. Those are habits. Those are taivas, whatever they are. Okay? Every person has unique strengths. No problem. Unique strengths that are natural to him and that are good and that are part of his purpose and mission in the world. And this is something that no one else can achieve. And it's also something that, that um, no matter how bad a person becomes, it, he hasn't erased the possibility that he could develop that side of himself because it's his inner self. It's an inner goodness that there. And so one person might be, have, be very weak in anger, but he might have a different quality that he's very good at. So... He has something else he can contribute. So we look at people and sometimes we feel judgmental, like, oh, they have all these bad qualities. We forget to look. So what is it they add? There's something they're contributing here. Maybe they haven't developed it well. Can I? Yeah, maybe I'll just read the last sentence and then that'll be the end for today and then we can, okay. So every person has their unique strengths and qualities through which... He has the power to become great and to also turn his whole self towards the good. He, you use those strengths also to make yourself better, not just that you are better with them. And in this, a person can focus all of his efforts. Through this, he can reach a shlemos. That's the quote from Rabbi Yeah. Uh, I just wanted to say two things that I was thinking. One is that um, sometimes I think 
our own good traits, our own good, our own strengths are suppressed. Like they're not, they're not even activated at all. So sometimes, if we ask ourselves, "What are my real traits?" we can be confused or blind because certain things are blocked from being expressed, and then there needs to be a process, really, just to release those. And e even if you think about people who've been severely traumatized, that's an extreme. But you know, they may have great traits, but their psyche is so so unlocked down that nothing is coming out, and then there needs to be an exploratory process. Could be. But then the other thing I was just thinking is, I I think sometimes we're blind to our own contribution. Yeah. And it almost is like if I ask myself, well, what does my husband bring? I can mm -hmm. say like I see in him. It's easier to see. You know, it just it takes a lot of nerve to ask the people close right. to you what you're good at, because it's hard to hear sometimes those things. I could tell you one helpful tool, and I've talked about this before, is um, it's, it's famously known as the, I don't know, it's either like the eulogy action or the 100th birthday party, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. What will people say about you? Well, that's what I thought it was the first time. I've mentioned this before. The first time I saw that exercise, that's what I thought was the question. What will people say about you when you're 100? Mm -hmm. Um, which almost gave me a nervous breakdown. But <laughs> it turns out that's not, in fact, the question you ask. Um, so once I, got, once I worked my way through that crisis, I went back and found out that the question you ask there is you take, you take each role, okay? It, it, I mean, your roles become unlimited the more you think about them. So you take five, let's say, right? So wife, daughter, um, parent, sister, colleague, whatever they are. And for each role, you, you visualize, you write the name down, right? But you visualize a specific person to whom you have that role. So if it's a daughter, it would be either a mother or a father. If it's sister, it would be one of your siblings, okay? And you put them down by name. You just pick. It almost doesn't matter which one unless there's something severely wrong with the relationship already, in which case you have to, like, think. But and then you just pick one, okay? And the question is, what would I like them to say I have meant to their lives? Mm -hmm. Which is a different question. Mm -hmm. I can tell you, it's a really a different question. Because <laughs> one of them opens your mind to thinking about how badly you're failing. Right. What are they going to say about me? Uh. Right. And one of them opens your mind to seeing what you could be to other people. Mm -hmm. Because it's what would I like them to say, not what will they say now, not even maybe what will they ever say, but what would I, what would I hope or dream or wish that this person would say I've meant in their life mm -hmm. by the time I'm 100? And for whatever reason, I don't know why it is, but it was, I found that it was a super helpful exercise to figuring, to, it was a question that somehow helped me get around my inner blindness. I, I, I always say we sit in our own blind spot. <laughs> like, I'm in my own blind spot. I can't see myself, right? And if I try and look at myself how other people see me, I have a nervous breakdown because I'm neurotic, right? So, so this question actually allowed me to try and think about what I could mean to other people without triggering all these catastrophic, like, neurotic reactions. So I found it was very, very helpful. And it actually led to, and afterward, when I looked at that, aside from being valuable on its own, I found that after I had done a bunch of them, I forget how many, five, six, seven, I was able to look back and see that there was a repeating pattern yeah. in many of them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when I noticed that repeating pattern, and then I said, what would happen if I, like, can I, first of all, can I generalize the pattern a little so that I could say that it's true in all of these cases? Mm -hmm. Right? How could I express that pattern in a way? And then it has a different a different flavor or a different appearance depending on the relationship, mm -hmm. right? So the way you treat your kids is not the same as the way you treat your colleagues, and yet both might be reflections of a certain quality that you bring. I, I found it to be an incredible exercise towards mm -hmm. getting a sense of who I am and what I can bring mm -hmm. into the world, which on its own then flows back downward. Like that's like a flowing upward to understanding, like the high level 
goal and then an understanding on a decision-making level in any particular moment in a relationship. Mm-hmm. Well, hang on, what do I bring? You know, before you walk in the door from work and you're about to see your kid, they're gonna jump on you and you're tired and you know, and it's like, mm-hmm. stop and remember, okay, what's my purpose here? What's my role in this relationship? And then you walk in, you're a whole different person. Yeah, yeah, you put yourself back towards your bed. I found it to be very, very, very helpful. I've given that to six or seven people in the course of, like, even career counseling. Like, not necessarily, you know, anything so. And um, people have come back. The men roll their eyes. (laughs) And they come back so excited. It's something that might be, like, in a book, like, what color is your parachute? Yeah, I think it's like a seven habits. This one is a seven habits one. Yeah, but I found that it was, I mean, whoops, gesundheit. The bringing that that into one overall theme, that's not a seven habits thing. That's my own, okay, like, building yeah. on it. Yeah, I like but um, I found that it's not just useful, mm-hmm. but it's critical. Mm-hmm. And it's particularly critical, it's particularly critical in terms of being able to reconcile competing demands. So you may have a lot of different roles and know your best self in each of those roles. That's already a huge amount of self-knowledge, right? <laughs> but even after you get there, what happens when your roles are competing with each other? Your kids want you and your parents want you. Your job wants you and your family wants you. Gesundheit. So how do you how do you balance? How do you know what to yeah, she needs a little bit of extra. So how do you know what to prioritize? So when you have that from the top down, because ultimately what you do is you can then understand that in your relationship with Hashem as well. And that allows you to then prioritize and make decisions that are consistent with your life as a whole. So I found it to be extremely useful. One of the roles. You put Hashem as one of the roles. Yes, but that was after the fact. Uh After the fact. Yeah. What What would I hope Hashem would say? I have meant not in his life, right? To his world. To his world. But that became clearer only after I saw that there was a unifying theme. Yeah, yeah. In the other roles, then I started to understand that there's a generalizable something that I'm put here for, right? So. Thank you for okay, me thank so you. Okay, thank you. I, I gave a share similar to that idea. I mean, we've talked about this before last year, but just a few weeks ago, um, I think it's already up on the website under other classes okay. at my friend Eva Becker's birthday party. It's an 18-minute share. Um, and it's actually about this idea of looking into ourselves and tying that into Rosh Hashanah and the shofar. Um, thank you so much. So, yeah. Okay. Thank you. Siva Vechasima Tova. Thank you so much. Bye. 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 Bye.